0: Well, if you were here with us last Wednesday, you know I began a series on Proverbs. It was an introduction to the book of Proverbs, and beginning this evening, we're going to be diving into the text itself, and I'm kind of being ambitious here. I'm I'm thinking we're going to go through the first two chapters. We'll see if we make it through the first two chapters or not, but I want to, I'm hoping to go through two chapters through each Bible study this year. That way... We can get through it um, this year in the first two Wednesdays of the year. But if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 1. Remember, there are 31 Proverbs. This is why a lot of people see it as almost like a a nice little devotional in the book. You can read one proverb a day for the month. In Proverbs uh, chapter 1, in verses 1 through 7, we really have the title, and the preamble to the book as a whole. So let's go ahead and read Proverbs 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Now, if you were here with us last Wednesday, you know how uh, we saw that Solomon wrote the vast majority of the Proverbs. He didn't write Proverbs 30, which is attributed to Agur. And he didn't write Proverbs 31, which is attributed to King Lemuel, and in particular the teaching of his mother. But his fingerprints are really found on Proverbs chapter 1 through 29. And, uh, and so this is how the book opens, that these are primarily, at least, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, the king of Israel. Now, um, you know... One thing we, we, we notice here, the, the fact that he's referred to as the son of David, it makes us think of uh, the covenant that God made with David that a son would sit upon his throne forever. And while we know Solomon didn't fit that bill, he didn't sit on the throne forever to rule and reign in peace, he was a type and shadow of the ultimate son of David, Jesus Christ, who would sit on the throne forever, who's sitting on the throne today, and is reigning and ruling in peace. And the wisdom that we see that pours forth from Solomon, son of David, as we read the book of Proverbs, ultimately is the wisdom that flowed from the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. Right. So when we read the book of Proverbs, we shouldn't just read it as these are the words of Solomon, but these indeed are the words of the greater Solomon, Jesus Christ. It's not just the words of a man, it is is the words of God. And so we receive it as a heavenly wisdom that can transform and affect people of every generation of all time. Not just 3,000 years ago when Solomon wrote it, but it's wisdom that is always relevant at every moment because it is the wisdom of God. Now the next six verses are one long sentence that summarize the aim of the book of Proverbs. Let's begin by reading verses 2 and 3 says this the proverbs of solomon son of david to know wisdom and instruction to perceive the words of understanding to receive the instruction of wisdom justice judgment and equity when it says to know wisdom the hebrew word there for know is yada which speaks of not just a head knowledge but an intimate experiential knowledge, right? It's kind of like when Adam and Eve had Cain, it says that Adam knew his wife Eve, right? And they had children. So the, the book of Proverbs, when it says to know wisdom, it's an invitation to a very up close and personal relationship with wisdom. Then it goes on to say to know wisdom and instruction. The word there, instruction, It carries the idea not simply of the instruction of a teacher, but it's more like the instruction of a drill sergeant, meaning the one instructing is very intent on seeing transformation of those under them and will do whatever is necessary, whether verbally or even with the rod of correction, to see that those under their instruction will ultimately obtain the wisdom they're seeking to give. So, for instance, you know, what we'll see in Proverbs is we'll see that it's not a bunch of candy-coated sayings. Rather, you know, it, it tells it to us straight. For instance, Proverbs 27, 5 to 6 says this, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. And that is kind of, the instruction that the Proverbs brings. It's the instruction of a drill sergeant that really loves you. It's It's the instruction of a father that really wants to see its son formed into a good godly man, and so sometimes there will be tough love involved. It's that kind of instruction that the book of Proverbs brings. It goes on to say, to perceive the words of understanding, That can also be translated to have insight of the words of understanding. To have insight is to have a much broader understanding than the normal person would. The normal person in Proverbs is called the simple person or the fool. One man said this, wisdom discerns multiple dimensions to people's motives and character. When we have a depth of insight, we can respond to a situation in a way that a fool can't. We can respond in wisdom and we can respond in love. This is what Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 1 verse 9. He said, and this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, which is what Proverbs says it's giving, insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. To be instructed in the Proverbs in a drilled sort of way is to be able ultimately to have insight, to have perspective, to be able to know how to see a situation from multiple different angles and to respond to that situation with wisdom. goes on to say this about Proverbs in in verse 4. To know Proverbs will, will be to give prudence to the simple. To the young man, knowledge and discretion. What is prudence? Prudence means this. It means good judgment, astute common sense, shrewdness. So if someone is instructed in the Proverbs, and and the simple is someone who is unformed in knowledge. There are those who are naive. And so basically, it's saying the book of Proverbs is for the simple and the naive person uh, to... um, you know, to become wise, to, to, to have common sense, to make good judgments about their life. So the book of Proverbs is primarily for those who are naive, and the naive are primarily the young. And discretion basically means the ability to make responsible decisions. So the Proverbs are to help the simple and the young to grow in responsibility. And ultimately, it is to sharpen that in everyone's life Throughout the course of their life, we all constantly need the foundational wisdom of Proverbs if we are just going to have solid, God-given, common sense in how we deal with situations. So the book of Proverbs is like a mentor who shows his mentee the ropes, tells them the truth straight up. It's like a good father who spends time with their children, showing them the right path and pleading with them not to go down the wrong path. Verse 5 says this, a wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. Well, what does the fool and the simple person do? La, 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 I'm not going to listen, right? I'm going to go do my own thing. Well, you know, who was one of the wisest men in Scripture? Solomon, yeah. Another wise man was Moses. In fact, the Jews probably revere Moses more than any other of the people Jews more than Abraham more than David more than anyone and this is what acts 7:22 says about Moses the guy who wrote the first five books of the bible says this Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the egyptians and was powerful in speech and in action so he was extraordinarily wise, not just in the wisdom of the world, in everything Egypt had to offer. I'm sure being trained as a prince of Egypt, he probably knew multiple languages, knew the wisdom of many cultures surrounding him, but he also had wisdom that he'd received from God, right? From Mount Sinai. Yet even Moses was a man who was willing to hear and to attain wise counsel so even he could increase in learning. One of the stories that's recounted for us in the book of Exodus is that early on in the wilderness, Moses was being worn out from morning to evening with judicial cases. So his father-in-law, Jethro, he took him aside and he advised him in a better way to handle (laughs) these judicial cases. He helped Moses set up a court system that could see oversee tens and fifties, hundreds and thousands, where Moses would, would serve as the last court of appeal himself. He would kind of be the, the supreme court, the justice that, if anything, reached its way through the court of appeals to him, he could handle that case, the most difficult case. And after hearing this advice from Jethro, this is what it says in Exodus 18, 24. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did every Thing he said. A wise man will hear and will increase learning. We are to have the same sort of receptive attitude as Moses. We never grow beyond the wisdom of Proverbs. We can always add to our learning. We can always be more deeply immersed in the scriptures and the ways of Christ. Are you glad you're going to add to your learning this year? I'm glad I am. Verse 6 says this, to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. An enigma and a riddle is something that's very perplexing, something we can't make sense of when we first read it or see it, something hard to figure out. Well, Proverbs says that as we gain in knowledge and wisdom and learn from the Proverbs, we can have understanding of even some of the most complex parts of wisdom. Some of, some of the Proverbs are more like parables. In fact, Jesus's parables are called Proverbs. They're called mashals in, in Hebrew. Verse 7 says this, and this is kind of how the preamble ends. This is almost like the thesis statement of the whole book. The fear of the Lord, or that's just the divine name there. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So here, Proverbs is different from all the other sources, wisdom books in the world, because the foundational aspect of wisdom, it begins with a personal relationship with the one true living God, right? Right? The beginning, the source, the font, the spring of wisdom is a fear of Yahweh. What does fear mean here? Well, it really means an awe and a reverence. And if we're going to really grow in wisdom, we must have a reverential awe for the one true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And without that foundational knowledge, Everything else, all other knowledge, ultimately is shaft. Thus, knowing God in a reverential way uh, must undergird all of our wisdom in everything we do in in life. It lights the path of wisdom, knowing God and knowing Him personally. You know, the statement, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, is repeated two other times in Proverbs. It's repeated, Solomon repeats it in the book of Ecclesiastes. And, um, and so, it's very important. You know, like I said, it's, it's a reverence that shows itself in respect and obedience. And at the same time, many times, the Lord responds to those who are terrified, right? This is the bad aspect of fear. They're terrified with what? Do not be afraid. God doesn't want us filled with terror, but he does want us filled with awe and reverence that will move us to a loving trust and obedience in Him as a good Father who wants what is best for us, right? It's the sort of reverence that a creature owes its Creator, the sort of reverence that the redeemed owes its Redeemer. Those who honor their parents and listen to them will grow in their parents' wisdom. Those who honor the Lord will listen to him and they will grow in his wisdom. If we're ever going to grow in wisdom, we need to have a reverential awe of the Lord and everything the Lord says. We want to sit at his feet like Mary sat at his feet and just seep seep up everything that's dripping from his mouth. That's how you're going to grow in wisdom. You just have an awe of his word. You have an awe that that he said, I and and my father are going to come and we're going to make our home inside of you. You you just have an awe of the God who has bought you with his blood. You know, after verse 7, it moves into the next big section of Proverbs. Proverbs 1, verse 8, all the way through the end of chapter 9, we might call, a lot of scholars call it the prologue of Proverbs. Proverbs. Uh, meaning it tells the importance of receiving wisdom and growing in wisdom before a lot of the short wisdom statements are given. So in Proverbs, the first nine chapters, it's like long lectures about the importance of wisdom before then the next 20 chapters or so gives a lot more shorter statements or little sound bites of wisdom for various aspects of life. And really in this part, in this prologue, We see 10 lectures on wisdom that are given by a father to a son. And the first of the 10 lectures in this prologue uh, is Proverbs 1, 8 through 19. Bruce Waltke, he calls it this, Lecture 1, reject the gang's invitation. We could also call it rejecting the crowd and worldly friends he says about it. In short, the first lecture warns the son against easy money. Simmering in the background is the tension between the parent's authority and the peer pressure of the gang. The father fortifies the son to resist the gang's enticements by first exposing the gang's belying words and then debunking them. So, this is always what good instruction does, right? It, 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 it exposes something. And then it debunks something. So let's read the first lecture, Proverbs 1, verse 8. My son, hear the instruction of your father, and do not forsake the law of your mother. First thing I want to notice here, it's how how both parents are instructing their kids, right? They're not just calling them to blind submission, do this, do that. But they're explaining why they they should obey their instruction. You know, I know um, <laughs> when I tell, you know, my daughters n- no when they ask me something, especially Brooklyn, she always has to have a long explanation why I say no, right? And if you're able to give an explanation, you should give an explanation. It will ha- help kids grow in understanding and wisdom, right, why you're saying no to something. Um, you know, not always able to do that, but sometimes, you know. And, and they should obey regardless if they have an answer or not, just like whether we fully understand why God tells us to live certain ways. We should obey it whether we fully understand it at the time or not. But hopefully, eventually, we get to understand the why of things. You know, also notice how wisdom flows from both parents here. It's the father and the mother. Of course, Genesis 2 assumes a mother and father is the head of the family unit. A healthy family unit will have both a a mother and a father, not two fathers or two mothers, for each sex complements each other in the rearing of a child, and one parent must not push off all the instruction and child rearing onto the other parent. Yet if one parent is lacking in an area or is an unbeliever, God will give the grace to the one believing parent to instruct their child in the fear of the Lord, right? I think of Timothy in the New Testament, right? His father was an unbeliever, his mother was a believer, and and Paul said that he had the living faith that dwelled in his grandmother and in his mother. So, you know, God will give grace for, for those who don't have a father and mother instructing them, just as a father or a mother. But, you know, the ideal case is that a father and a mother are both taking the responsibility to instruct their children in the ways of wisdom. And that there is that complement of a mother kind of instruction and a father kind of instruction. Because we need both. We need a motherly instruction and we need a fatherly instruction. Uh, Verse 9 says this. For they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. You know, children who receive and walk in the instruction of the book of Proverbs basically we're told here they will stand out, right? They will be decked out like a prince ready to take life by the horns. They will be capable of reigning in life through the abundance of God's gracious teaching. They will be like Joseph in his magnificent colored robe, right? Ruling his brothers. That's what it's going to be like if you receive the the godly instruction from the father and the mother that is given to us in this book. Verse 10. My son... If sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us have one purse. All right. What is the first thing? He says, if you are enticed by this kind of group that wants you to do things to get ill-gotten gain, you must not consent, right? Through God's grace and wisdom, we have the power to say no to ungodliness and temptation. Here the child is warned about the dangers of bad company, those in his town who want him to join their gang. The father's first lecture is um, and instruction in wisdom, you know, has to do with choosing our friends wise, wisely, right? Because to quote a, a modern proverb, the bad apple spoils the whole bunch, right? And sadly, you know, while Solomon is giving this instruction, and he's, he's sharing what the father's instruction to the son, Solomon's own son who took over as, as king for him, Rehoboam, he did not heed this advice. And father... Instead, when he came to the throne, instead of listening to the wisdom of the elders to treat the people of Israel kindly, he said, I'm going to go hear what my young friends have to say about this. And they say, if your father ruled, you know, and I can't remember with his thumb down, you know, or he ruled with whips, you rule with scorpions, something like that. You, You put your thumb down even more on the people, make it even more hard for them. And what did he do? He followed the advice. Of his young friends, what happened? Civil war. Israel was never united again. There was a southern kingdom, Judah, a northern kingdom, Israel, all because Rehoboam would not heed the instruction of his father, but listened to the advice of his young friends. That's usually what happens. You know, when the father describes what the speech of the gang is like, he completely exposes it. He recasts their appeal in a way that makes it repulsive. He shows his son that not all that glitters is gold and exposes the true nature of things for his son. His son shouldn't be tricked by their gold chains and their nice cars and their camaraderie. Rather, the son should be able to see that their life was built on violence, that it was a house on sand ready to collapse, to not go near them. 1 Corinthians six eighteen says we're to flee immorality, 2 Timothy 2.22 says we are to flee youthful lusts. We must not consent no matter the appeal the world brings. He continues his speech like this in verse 15. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. For their feet run to evil, and then make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They're much stupider than birds. They lurk secretly for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. What does he say? He says, son, keep your foot from their path. The son is not simply to not walk with the gain, but he's not even to go near their path, right? Meaning, don't even entertain the idea of joining in with these guys, son. He is to keep himself from being allured and tempted by them, to be busy working hard and keeping on the path of wisdom, so much so that the other paths offer no enticement whatsoever to him. The father says even birds have the sense to avoid traps, yet these boys don't even have the sense of a bird. They don't even see the trap, but they set the trap for themselves. They ultimately will eat the fruit of their own way. The father then ends the speech by saying that the motivation behind this sort of gang is greed. And anyone who gets entangled with greed will find sorrow, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. To have unjust gain is wickedness. Well, let's move on to the last part of Proverbs 1. And the last part of Proverbs 1 introduces a speech from Lady Wisdom. So, I, I mentioned last Wednesday how a key figure in the book of Pro- Proverbs is personified wisdom, who speaks as a woman. We call her Lady Wisdom. The reason uh, she's personified as a, wisdom, uh, as a woman is because Hebrew, the, the words in Hebrew, um, you know, they're all gendered words, and the Hebrew word for wisdom is, is female, and so when, she's, when wisdom is personified, it, it just makes sense that it's Lady Wisdom who's speaking. And her first speech is a rebuke of those who are uncommitted to her ways. Her message in a nutshell is repent, because when the time of judgment comes, there's not going to be a second chance. So repent now and receive my wisdom. I want to see your life in order. So this is what she says, Proverbs 1 verse 20. Wisdom calls aloud outside, she raises her voice in the open squares, she cries out in the chief concourses, at the openings of the gates in the city, she speaks her words. What does she say? How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. So first we meet Lady Wisdom, and where is she? She's where everyone can see her and hear her, right? She's in the most public places. Her speech is for anyone and everyone who will simply listen. What does this show us? God's word is not private, right? It's not for a special group of people that he chooses to be part of his secret society. No, God's wisdom is never like that. His word is written for all to see and to hear. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 27, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. So here we see Lady Wisdom shouting out God's wisdom for all the world to hear, pleading and warning and reasoning and threatening. Yet many of them simply don't heed her, right? Their minds are cluttered with other thoughts and other things and saying, I don't want that. So she says, how long? How many more weeks or months or years will you reject my help? The rejection of lady wisdom makes me think of those who rejected the kingdom of Jesus. and Jesus' parable of the great banquet, it says, remember, he he says, everything is ready. Come, attend my banquet. But one by one, they began to make... excuses why they couldn't attend. I married a wife. Sorry, I can't attend. I bought me some cows. Sorry, I can't attend. So what does he say? He tells his servants, well, go into the highways and the byways and compel them to come in, right? He's like Lady Wisdom screaming on the streets. I have everything you need for life. Just come for me and let's rejoice and celebrate in the life I want to give you. That's what Lady Wisdom is doing here. The simple, they're the gullible. They they believe anything. They're easily led and influenced. The fool is wise in their own eyes. They're building their lives on their own principles that are selfish. And and their life, it collapses. They will have nothing to do with lady wisdom. What does she go on to say in verse 23? She says, turn at my rebuke. What is turn? It means repent. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. Surely. Look at that promise. I will make my words known to you in an intimate way. That's why she's pleading with people. She wants to see all these people's lives transformed. You know, God always gives the fool and the simple time to repent, to turn, to think again, to receive his blessing. When someone turns toward wisdom, there is a promise that there will be a pouring out of the spirit of wisdom on them, right? They'll have a downpour. They'll be drenched. They'll be immersed. They'll be baptized in wisdom. There is still hope for them, right? Well, sadly, many did not turn at her call, so she continues in verse 24. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despised my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. So here we see first Lady Wisdom, she's out in the public squares and she's pleading, she's exhorting, she's shouting, she's crying, she's holding out her hands. She's offering to drench them in wisdom and new life. And yet many refuse her. So when she sees the fool and the simple experience the fruit of their own way, she says that she laughs. That doesn't, you know, why does she laugh? She laughs like God laughs at the kings who try to come against his anointed son in Psalm chapter 2, right? God, he sits on his throne and he laughs. They laugh, wisdom and God laugh, because they are glad that the way of foolishness and evil does not prevail. We can rejoice that evil ultimately does not prevail. If we do rejoice at the downfall of evil with Lady Wisdom, you know, it just reminds us that we must flee to her to receive her wisdom and her truth. The fools, they disdained her counsel, they hated her knowledge, they despised her rebuke, and they ultimately refused to revere Yahweh. That meant they were on the path to destruction. And when they finally did experience their destruction, it was too late, and they cried out. It's kind of like Jesus' parable of the ten virgins, right? The bridegroom comes. There were five wise ones, right? And five were what? Foolish, kind of like here, right? The wise ones, they had the oil. Jesus lets them in. The five foolish, they didn't. They weren't waiting for the Lord. And what happens? It was too late. They couldn't come in. In contrast to the destruction, the simple experience, those who listen to Lady Wisdom were told will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. Aren't you glad you can dwell safely and securely without fear of evil? What a blessed life, right? Safe and secure from all alarms, leaning on the everlasting arms. You know, it's kind of like Noah. He listened to Lady Wisdom. (laughs) He got in the ark. Everyone else is crying out. He's asleep, right, on the hay. He's like, ha, thank you, Jesus. Safe and secure. It's like Lot. He's living in Sodom. Wisdom's crying out on the concourse. there. No one's listening. God says, let me pull that one righteous man, Lot, out of there. Get him out of there. He was safe. You know, stories like that could be multiplied in Scripture. As we cling to wisdom and ultimately cling to the source of wisdom, Christ Jesus, we can live a life safe and secure with no fear of evil. We can live free from the consequences of those who choose the way and path of the gang. Right? How, many of you know, how many of you have ever seen someone who's chosen a path like the Father describes in um, chapter 1 here, and it ends up for destruction for them? Anyone familiar with that? I'm familiar with that. Like, this happens. Everyone knows this happens, Right? And so God is telling us, listen, this is just the way of life. So listen up. Don't choose that pathway. Let's move to chapter 2. So this is one of the shortest chapters in Proverbs, only 22 verses. And it's like one long sentence, the whole chapter in Hebrew, broken into 22 statements, which is the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So it's like one long, um, complete Uh, lecture, again, by the father. It's the second lecture. Uh, Wolke, he he, he titles this lecture, A Safeguard Against the Wicked. So the father first shows the son how to obtain godly character, and then shows how that character will protect them from ungodly men and ungodly women. So let's... um, um, so he, he first lays out the conditions that the son needs to follow if he's gonna enjoy the fruit of wisdom. He says this in Proverbs 2, verse one. My son, if you receive my words, there's some translations say if you accept my word and treasure my commands within you, or if you store up my commands within you. Let's just stop there. The only way we will benefit from wisdom And the blessed life it offers is if we first receive its words. And not just receive the words as the truth that God has to say about that certain subject, but that we deeply treasure them inside of our hearts. It's like, wow, this is God's word. This is what he thinks about his subject. And I'm going to place such a high value on it that I'm treasuring it in my heart. Right? Paul says in Colossians 3.16 that the word of Christ needs to dwell Richly in you. Well, that's the same thing that the Father is saying to the Son. Let my words dwell richly in you. Our heart needs to be the place where the treasure of God's word and wisdom is stored. We need to be like the Holy of Holies that housed God's literal writing in the Ark of the Covenant, receiving His word, storing it up. Deuteronomy 6 4 says this Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Now, ultimately, that didn't happen until the new covenant happened, when God wrote on our heart His word. Aren't you like God's word is written on your heart? So we can do this. The, the old covenant people, they really couldn't do this. But you and I, we can fully do this because the Holy Spirit has written His word on our heart. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. When you treasure something, it's going to be important to you, and you're going to always be talking about it, right? That's what God says. (laughs) You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, meaning you're always seeing them and thinking about them. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, meaning you never want to go anywhere without them right there. God's Word is so treasured to you, you just want it All around you. Now, I don't think God was saying they literally were supposed to do those things, but figuratively, they were constantly supposed to have God's word with them wherever they went. You know, we will have the word stored in our heart if we are constantly, um, if um, they are constantly with us wherever we go and are treasured. You know, we need to be like the Bereans who examine the scriptures daily. We need to be uh, like uh, the soil in Jesus' parable of the sower that had a Good and noble heart, and treasured the seed that was sown into it, and produced a hundred, you know, fold fruit. Uh, Treasure, 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 store up in treasure, receive in treasure, receive and meditate upon. Verse two, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding. So here we have ears, heart, and voice involved. We hear, then we receive. Then we cry out for more. Wisdom is crying out to us and we receive her invitation and we hunger and thirst for more of what she has to offer, right? So it's like the, the, the father's saying, you got to be hungry for it. you got to go after it. you got to treasure it. It's like what, what David, he, he had a lot of wisdom from God, but he cried out for more. In Psalm 119, verse 18, he says, Open my eyes that I might see wondrous things from your law. That can be our prayer. Open our eyes that we see wondrous things from your law, from your teaching, from your word in general. This crying out for wisdom and revelation was imitated by Solomon. We read last Wednesday, what was the first thing Solomon asked God for? When he said you could have whatever you want. Wisdom. Give your servant an understanding heart. Give me wisdom. God said you asked for the best thing, and because you asked for that, I'm going to give you alongside riches and honor as well, right? And what is that an example of? It's an example of what we all are supposed to do. Cry out for wisdom. This is an instruction to the Christian in James 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And how does God give? Liberally and without reproach. And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not him, you know, believe he's going to receive anything from God. Let's ask in faith. Let's cry out for wisdom. That's what the Father says to the Son here in Proverbs chapter 2 to 2, verse 4. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, again, There is a great value placed on this wisdom. It's like Jesus' parable of the pearl of great price, who the merchant was searching for that one pearl of great price, and when he found it, he went and sold everything so that he could just obtain that pearl of great price. It was the object of his affection, of his loves, of his heart, was set on that pearl. Well, this is what Solomon is saying. If you really cry out for wisdom, and you search for it, and you seek it, guess what? It's going to be poured out to you. He he, he says, seek her as silver. You know, silver mining in the ancient world was a very dangerous business. Miners would be lowered by ropes into deep, narrow shafts, and it took a lot of courage and guts to seek for silver. (laughs) Well, to go down the path of wisdom takes guts sometimes. It will take a willingness to leave behind your old life, your old behavior, your old patterns of thoughts so that you'll be able to find something that's priceless to replace it. Christ and the life he offers is the one object um, of our search. So what happens if someone receives and someone treasures and someone inclines and implies and cries out and lifts up their voice and seeks and searches? Verse 5, this is what will happen. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. That is the number one thing in our search for wisdom, is that we will know God. Remember, he just told us in chapter 1 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If one truly desires wisdom, they will become acquainted with the one true God. The God who has made himself known in the scriptures. The God who has made himself known in his son, Jesus Christ. And it is not simply a head knowledge of God that is spoken here, but one is personally acquainted with this God at the level of their heart, of their affections. Again, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. The intimacy that Jesus spoke When he said that he would come and make his home inside of us. Look what it goes on to say in verse six. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the path of justice and preserves the way of his saints. The wisdom of the Lord gives to those who cry out for it a shield to their life. A shield to their life. The wisdom of God will protect you. It will guard you. We will see at the end of this chapter that wisdom will protect the one who has received it from apostasies, from leaving the Lord, from the apostasy of the wicked men around them, from the immorality of the adulterous woman. The wisdom of the Lord is something that preserves the way of His saints, right? He guards the path of justice and preserves the way of His saints. How many of you want to be preserved in life, (laughs) right? Paul, he ends his letter to the Thessalonians by praying that they would be a preserved spirit, soul, and body, blameless until the coming of the Lord. The Proverbs are a preservation point for God's saints. It keeps them safe. It keeps them clean. It keeps them heading down the right direction. It keeps them filled with godly sense. It is like how going to church every week, I really think the the reason why God wants us to go to church every week and, you know, be in the habit of not forsaking the assembly is because the church is a preservation point in many ways from all the junk that people accumulate throughout the week, right? We need preservation points. We need the preservation of God's wisdom So we need to treasure it, and we need to be continually washed by it. We need to be washed by the water of the Word, washed by the water of God's wisdom. Verse 9, Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity, and every good path. Who here wants to understand all that stuff? I do. (laughs) I want to understand it. The Hebrew word for path here means a track or an entrenchment. It basically is referring to wagon ruts. If one wagon makes some ruts, others will follow in those same ruts if they want a smooth ride. If we gain wisdom, we will understand righteousness and follow the rightly worn paths rather than the wrong ones. And we will leave good wagon ruts for others to follow behind us. Verse 10. When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you. So wisdom must enter the heart and be pleasant to our soul if it is going to have a preservation effect on us, right? Meaning, you know, we just <laughs> we can't be content with head knowledge. Rather, we need the truth of the Word of God to pierce us at the depth of our heart. Enter your heart if you're going to find transformation. One reason God's Word will be pleasant to us is because we have a new nature in Christ Jesus and we're filled with His Spirit. Who we are in Christ right? It craves the word of truth. So we need to feed the new man of who we are in Jesus Christ. We need to feed it and let it dominate us. It'll be sweet to us. Verse 12, to deliver you. Why is he giving him all this wisdom? To deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked, whose ways are crooked and who are devious in their paths. So the first thing being rooted in wisdom does for you is it removes you from the way of evil and the evil men. Men whose heart is wicked, who speak perversity, who walk in dark paths. Not only do they do these things, but they delight in their evil. They delight in their perversity. Right? <laughs> the Bible presents a true picture of humanity, right? Okay. Those who are in Christ in wisdom will immediately begin to see how evil those paths really were, and they will expose those paths and dangers to others. This is what Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5, verse 8. For you once were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. I feel like Paul is probably thinking of a few, uh, Proverbs 2, uh, 12 to 15 here as he's writing that. Notice how wisdom will preserve you from those who leave the paths of uprightness. I think one way we can apply this is that it is speaking of those who might have grown up in the church with you. But once they reach adulthood, they leave behind the ways of the Lord. They become hardened. I read some statistic. It's something like 90% of Christian kids who go to college end up, uh, stop going to church, and many of them leaving the faith. That speaks of two things. It speaks of, one, we have a need to do a better job in the church. Amen. Instructing our children. Number two, it speaks to the perversity of our college system. Right? They become allured by the world. They leave the family and the faith behind. Well, for a son well formed by wisdom and affected at the level of the heart, they will not follow the path of those um, who are leaving the faith. Rather, they will stay. They will be preserved. Wisdom will not just deliver you from the path of wicked men, but also from the immoral, the immoral woman, or also translated the stranger woman. Let's look at verse 16. To deliver you. Wisdom will do this for you, my young son. It will deliver you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words, who forsakes the companion of her youth, and forgets the covenant of her God. Now, the flattery speech of the seductress is given in Proverbs 7, verse 14 to 20. We'll see all of her alluring words when we get to Proverbs 7. And the father exposes the ways of this immoral woman even more to her to his son when, when he gets there. But here he's content to show his son that there are such things as immoral women in the world who turn their back on their husband, right, their companion of her of their youth, and the covenant they made with their God. They the fact that there is a biblical category for sexually immoral women is something that needs to be stressed in our own day. One guy says this, he says, today there is the tendency to view things without nuance, for example, to think of all women as victims to men. This rejects the idea of the immoral woman thinking that if there is a sexual liaison between a man and a woman, he must be the perpetrator and she must be the victim, right? How many know we've heard that the last five years in our news? (laughs) Well, the Bible shows this modern idea is a fantasy. Both men and women can be sexual predators. Both men and women can be sexually immoral. So the father points out to the son what is wrong with that type of woman. Now, immoral here can also be translated strange. She is strange in that she is disloyal to God and like the foreign women who turned Solomon's heart away from God to worshiping those strange gods. An unrepentant woman who has broken a covenant with the husband of her youth and is out in the world alluring other men is a woman who will break the marriage covenant again. In fact, you know what? Divorce statistics bear that truth out. People in a second marriage have a higher percent chance of getting divorced than people in a first marriage. Why? Because some of them never repented, sought the Lord to help them, and used used that wisdom in entering a new covenant with another spouse. Rather... You know their pain and their brokenness lived on on repeat, and so he's showing his son. Listen, there are these immoral women out there, and they're seductresses, and they're going to try to flatter you with words. But guess what? They have a crooked, uh, you know, past. They've left the companion of their youth. They've forgotten the covenant with their God, they're no longer worshiping the Lord, the covenant they made before God with, with the companion of the youth, they've broken, stay far away from her. Unless she's repented, of course. <laughs> Look out for her glib, oily speeches. They lead nowhere good. But let me tell you where they lead you, son. Let me tell you. Let me give you a real clear picture here. Verse 18. For her house leads down to death and her paths to the dead. You really want to to walk through that door, son? Her path leads down to death. In Proverbs 7, this immoral woman's husband is away on business when she's inviting the man into her home. For someone to cross the threshold of her home and engage with her is to engage in adultery. Now, in a very literal sense, in the Old Testament, you know what the punishment for the adulterer was? It was death. Her house leads down to death. Like, for the Hebrew man to speak that to his Hebrew son, he was saying, yes, you will die if you go into her house. Now, there are still parts of the world today where that's true. So, in a very literal sense, that could apply in that way to many parts of the world today. But there's other ways it leads down to death, too. Matthew Poole, he describes some of the ways her house leads down to death. He says this. By wasting a man's vital spirits and shortening his life. By exposing him to many, to many dangerous diseases, which physicians have declared and proved to be the effects of inordinate lust. As also uh, to the fury of jealous husbands or friends. Proverbs talks about that. And sometimes to the sword of civil justice and undoubtedly without repentance to God's wrath. Robert Alter says her house is a death trap. You enter it and you find yourself on a chute sliding down into the realm of death. The young man may think he is going to reach the very heights of pleasure. He might think he's going to be on cloud nine, so to speak. But the reality is he's just stepping into the very muck of hell itself. Don't enter that door, son. Aren't you glad for the grace of Jesus Christ, okay? Amen. Right? <laughs> okay. So, so if someone does enter these doors, Jesus He raises us up out of the muck, and he makes us as a prince, and he washes us clean. And our sins, though they were red as scarlet, they will be white as snow. As far as the east as the west, he will move around. God restores, and yet he still doesn't want to see people suffer the consequences of these sins, so he still pleads with people, do not go down these paths, right? Do not go down these roads. It's like what Peter pleads in 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I beg you. He's like Lady Wisdom, begging and crying out. I beg you. As sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. I beg you to abstain from these fleshly lusts. The Father continues his speech in Proverbs 2.19. None who go to her return, nor do they regain the paths of life. So he says, don't go to Dame Folly. Don't go to the seductress. The only fruit she gives is the fruit of death. There is no life to be found with her. She's just a tool of the enemy who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, and he just appears as an angel of light, but really, he is death incarnate. right? The only place you're going to have abundant life, son, is with Jesus, and he gives life, and he gives it more abundant. Amen. Now he concludes his speech like this. Verse 20. So you may... Walk in the way of goodness and keep to the paths of righteousness. For the upright will dwell in the land and the blameless will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the earth and the unfaithful will be uprooted from it. A story of a man who turned from the wicked men and turned from immoral women was Joseph in the Old Testament, right? He was able to stay on the path that his father Israel had instructed him to stay on. He his life was preserved, and eventually he did dwell in the land, just as this promised. And in a sense, all who come to wisdom, who is a type of Jesus Christ, receive life, eternal life. One day all the wicked will be uprooted from life, but those who come to Christ will be raised glorious to experience life with him forever. They will experience that promise of dwelling in the land. So it's true that some may enjoy the passing pleasures of sin for a season, as the Bible calls it, But ultimately, the instruction here in Proverbs, the wisdom of Proverbs shows us that that pleasure is cut off and there's nothing to show for it except destruction. So, the Father is beckoning the children to choose wisely, to choose wisdom, to cling to Jesus, to find a life that is alive and set free from the ways of the world so that people may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are to be like stars that shine amongst a wicked and crooked and perverse generation. This is our calling to walk on the path of wisdom and to rejoice in it, right? To cry out for more wisdom. To cling to her, to treasure her. To find life in that way. And how many know we, we've not always always followed the path of wisdom in everything? So we need grace. Grace is always there, right? Grace is always there. This is not a speech of condemnation because Lady Wisdom is always crying out. And it's only ever too late once you're dead in the grave, right? That's when she, she laughs at the fruit of, of wickedness and evil. But as long as you're still breathing, the grace of God is still there. Yes. The grace of God is still calling you. Yes. The love of God is still there to sustain you. And He's saying your life can indeed be turned around. It can indeed be transformed through the power of my word, through the power of my spirit, and you can walk in new life. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for the uh, the truths of Proverbs chapter 1 and chapter 2, Lord. I thank you that the fear of the Lord, a reverential awe of who you are as our good Father, as our Redeemer, as our Creator, as our Lord. A reverential awe of you in our life, Lord, in all of our ways, is the beginning of wisdom. So, Lord, may we, as we go throughout this week, just have a reverential awe of who you are in our life, what you've done for us, who you are as our good Father, who you are as our Lord and Savior, Lord. We just we just thank you for that, Lord, and, and we thank you for your word. May we treasure it. May we meditate upon it and may we see the fruits of it, Lord, in our life. We thank you for it, in Jesus' name. Amen.